Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, as we continue our exposition in this wonderful gospel that I'm growing to fall in love with more and more with each passing week. John chapter 2. We'll be taking up the second half of this chapter, God willing, that's verses 12 to 25. You'll remember last week was the wedding at Cana, right? Earlier in chapter 2. And, um, you know, it's one thing to see Jesus celebrating, um, enjoying a, a wedding, maybe enjoying a nice glass of wine that he made, all these 180 gallons of wine. And it's quite another to see him as we see him today. Harsh words within the temple. It's the, the, the meek and mild Jesus that we tend to think of, right? The gentle one and all of that uh, is, is not really on display today. We're used to seeing him mild and humble, but today we see that there's great zeal that has gripped him for his Father's glory and for the house of God. It's, it's really a shocking account, quite frankly. It's, uh, it's amazing to think of. Um, the, the zeal that Jesus had. It's sort of like in Luke 5, I was thinking of maybe a parallel. It, it, it shocks us sometimes when we come face to face, like Peter did, with the holiness of God. In Luke 5, it says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep. Remember, they've been fishing all night, right? And so here comes Jesus, put out into the deep. And Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked, worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. Well, when they had done this, they enclosed such a great quantity of fish. Their nets began to break. They singled to their partners in the other boat, and they came over to help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. Now think of Peter. They've been fishing all night. These are, it's not like when I go fishing, you know, what, once every 20 years lately, but, uh, but you know, where it's like, okay, I'm no good at this. I'm, I, it doesn't shock me that I don't catch anything. These are professional fishermen, and they've labored all night. They know the right places and where to go. And so what does he say? They, they when both boats, there were so many fish. It's not just a small catch. You get the idea. It's from nothing to huge abundance. And when Simon Peter saw that, he fell on his, at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I'm a sinful man. He came face to face with deity there. We see Jesus unveiled throughout the entire Bible as a, a sinless Savior that has come to purchase the souls of men. But in this cleansing of the temple, as we'll see, there's, there's something of a, a proclamation of Jesus. His call and his mission is, and purpose of coming is on display. So let's read the account. I'm going to read the entire account. You can follow along, <clears throat> beginning in verse 12. <clears throat> After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away, making my, stop making my house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign will you show us as your authority for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, it took 46 years to build this temple. How will you raise it up in three days? Then he was, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he had When he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, for his own part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men." And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, he himself knew what is in man. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask that you would meet with us even now by your Spirit. Pour out your Spirit upon this place, upon the one speaking, upon all that are listening. Be glorified. We want to see Christ glorified. Help us to see this zeal of Christ in in your temple for your glory more clearly and and help us to answer the questions that I will ask. Do we have a zeal like this? And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time, last week, we saw that wedding at Cana. We saw that scene there where weddings, there's a lot of emotion, a lot of expectations that go into a wedding, just like much like today. And uh, there was expectations, right? The expectations of the guests to give gifts to the wedding party, but also expectation of those hosting the wedding to make sure that there is an abundant supply. And these celebrations would take place for upwards of a week. And we saw that Jesus enjoyed celebrating. Jesus was, was a popular dinner guest. But the situation here when the wine ran out and that situation with Mary, where he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What he's doing is he's, he's, he's demonstrating that the relationship between him and Mary as mother and son is beginning to change as he begins his public ministry. So she tells the servants, just do it, you know, just do whatever he says, and uh, purification water pots that were there. They were for washing dirty hands, washing smelly feet, and washing dirty dishes. And he tells the servants, fill them up. And they're filled all the way to the brim. And then he says, draw out. Tell the servant, now draw some out, take it to the head waiter, the master of the ceremony, as it were. And he was the superintendent of the entire banquet. And he says, well, you remember what he says here. He says, Every man serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk some, he serves the poor wine. But you have saved the good wine until now. So Jesus made quality wine that was recognized by that head waiter, and even says he doesn't even know where it came from. So really, this miracle, it says here that this was a sign and that he manifested his glory, but it was very limited in scope. It's really just the servants and the disciples that even know what Jesus did. Well, today, that'll shift. He really begins his public ministry in a very um, demonstrative way, I suppose we could say. 
So we're going to look at this under three points, um, just verses 12 and 13, Jesus begins his public ministry. Uh, secondly, do you have zeal for God's house? And third, do you have a part in raising up of the new temple of Jesus? So first of all, verse 12, notice it's tucked there. Uh, I have the, the um, separation is between 12 and 13, but I thought 12 sort of fit with 13. And it says here, after this, he went down to Capernaum. Well, what does that mean? After this what? After the wedding at Cana, and John uses this term uh, four times distinctly in his gospel, and it always means a succession of events. So there wasn't a long period of time, I don't think, uh, interspersed here. It's a direct chronological sequence. Now, where was Capernaum? Well, that would become the headquarters, as it were, of Jesus' ministry. His latter ministry is uh, uh, his latter ministry. It's on the northwest coast of Galilee. So, his Galilean ministry, and about sixteen miles northeast of Cana. So, you figure they're walking. This is probably a couple day journey. But notice it distinctly says he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So he, they went there, they perhaps rested, saw other family, and then verse 13, the Passover. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. What is the Passover? What is that? What was that celebration? You'll remember where it came from, right? It came from, in the book of Exodus, it was a mighty deliverance. For, from the Israel, from the bondage of Egypt, in which all the firstborn of Egypt were killed, even the livestock, but the death angel passed over the Israelites' houses. Now, why did he pass over them? Because you'll remember they had to slay a lamb, they took the blood, they put it on the doorpost, and then if the angel of death seized that, he would pass over. This was on the 14th day of the month of Nisim, which is around... Late March, early April for us is when the Passover is celebrated. And as you know, the Lord's Supper, institution of the Lord's Supper was Passover, and that's why Easter is always kind of floating around right after the third full moon, roughly late March and early April. Jewish men were to go to Jerusalem annually for the Passover. And notice it says... um, He went up to Jerusalem. That's because Jerusalem had an elevation. It was probably around 2,000, 2,500 feet or so. So all the surrounding areas, there would be a going up. The Psalms of Ascent that we have in the Psalms were were the songs that they would sing as they were going up. And and so that's why it says going up. It's kind of like London, even in London, the, the Brits say, we're going up to London, even if they're coming from the south or the north or the east or the west, because it's the centerpiece, as it were. Now, John's Gospel alone records three Passovers. Um, none of the other Gospels do that. We have this at the beginning of his ministry. In chapter 6, we'll see another one. And then at chapter 11, the end of chapter 11. Now, we know Jesus is the Passover Lamb. He would be the one that would be sacrificed for unworthy sinners. And all of the temple and the Passover pointed to this fulfillment of his death. 
Jesus inaugurates his ministry after 30 quiet years, right? He's estimated to be roughly 13 years old. The first sign, as I already said, was with the wine. But now he makes a very public appearance and display. And what more appropriate place than God's house to come onto the scene, to let the Jewish leaders know And this is really the beginning of the conflict that you see throughout all the Gospels between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Jews and the priests and so forth. Well, secondly, do you have a zeal for God's house? Notice in verse 14, and he found the temple. In the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers. That's what he found when he got there. Now, first of all, which temple is this? It's not Solomon's temple. What happened to Solomon's temple? It's destroyed, right? Who destroyed it? Babylonians, right? And so, and then it was right before the 70 years of exile. And so as the people of God were coming back, uh, the, 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 the exiles after that 70 years, the temple was rebuilt. You can look at the book of Haggai, even Ezra and Nehemiah. And, um, and, and you get hints of all that. But that was about 500 B.C., but even the men in Haggai chapter 1, the men that was, were old enough to remember the former temple in all of its glory, and then to see the new one being built, wept because it paled in comparison to Solomon's glorious temple. And then about 20 BC, Herod um, decides he wants to uh, refurbish it and enhance it, and so he added all these pillars, he he added to it, made it much more glorious, and so that's the... T- In fact, the remodeling was still going on at this time of Jesus. Now, when it says Jesus found, it means to find something after searching. But Jesus didn't have to search long to find the Jews profaning the temple in the court of the Gentiles. If you got the email, you saw the little thing. You know, there was different uh, segments as you would go out, the court of women... Uh, where the, the priests would be, the court of women, and then out the uh, Jews that are purified and cleansed, and then the court of the Gentiles. And uh, so they were out, on, they were on the kind of the outskirts around there, but, and, but they were buying and selling. You can envision the scene. Have you ever been to like a, a noisy swap meet? I don't know, do people go to swap meets anymore, maybe? But uh, anyway, it's just, it's noisy, and there's buying and selling, and there's yelling, and oftentimes smells, and there would have been smells here, right? There's all these animals that are there. And so it's, it's just a picture of chaos, a sheep bleeding, bargaining, people yelling, the smells. Now, on the one hand, this would be very convenient for the pilgrims. If a pilgrim traveled 80 miles to come to Jerusalem, a, a, a Jew, to observe the Passover, he doesn't want to drag a lamb, right, <laughs> for, for a, a several-day journey. So typically, this was very convenient for these. It was convenient for the the Jews who would come. And then also, there was a temple tax on all men who were above 20 years old. That's why the money changers were there. People are coming from all types of foreign lands in the Roman Empire with different currencies, and the temple tax had to be paid in a particular currency. And so they would exchange the money for you, much like when you go to London, which, by the way, it's a great time to go to Europe because it's almost one-to-one to the euro, but you get to the airport, now, if you're smart, you'll go to a bank, you get a better exchange rate, but 
every illustration fails. But anyway, if, if you just want some quick pounds in your pocket so you can you know, buy, get some fish and chips or whatever, um, you, you, wanna, you exchange at the foreign currency exchange. And that, those places, they take a little, they, there's a premium that you pay, right? You know, you look at your app and you're like, the exchange rate's this. Why is it like four points higher? Well, that's their margin that they, that they profit with. Well, so too, that's what the money changers did. It was okay. It was right for them to take a little bit for their time and their effort, right? And so the activities were a service and a benefit for traveling Jews to make things easy once they got to Jerusalem. Not necessarily a bad thing, but... Big butt. <laughs> but the issue here is that they were selling these animals and overcharging. They were cheating the pilgrims. They were pilfering, as it were. Furthermore, traditionally, this would all be set up outside of the temple near the Kidron Valley. But what had happened is they brought it into the temple. Okay, And not only that, they're cheating. Um, you know, the, the, the merchants are cheating them and the outer court of the Gentiles. Oftentimes, the money changers would overcharge excessive exchange rates. And so Jesus reacts the way he does because he knows the deceit uh, that they have, but also that they have brought all of this into the temple. Well, verse 15, Jesus made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and poured the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Well, you might think, couldn't he just, hey guys, hey, I'm God's son. Um, can you just take that outside? I don't really mind what you're doing. No, he, what does he do? He, 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 his response is dramatic. His response is disruptive to what is going on. And it is decisive. Now, what is this whip of cords? It's, it's whatever was there with all the animals, so likely some ropes that he bound together. In fact, the same Greek word occurs in um, Acts 27, verse 32, um, where the ropes that hold the ship in place. And so this was just some kind of heavy-duty rope, but it was enough to get their attention. It was enough to empty the outer courts. Okay, And John may have even been thinking as he's recording this, of in Malachi chapter 3. I want you to turn there with me. Malachi is just on the flip side before Matthew. Very easy to find. Now, this is a reference to John the Baptist, but it's also very much a, 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 a double fulfillment of, of the Lord because he comes on the scene suddenly. He says, behold, I'm going, this is 3.1, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 3, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. So this is obviously, it's, it's pointing initially to John the Baptist, but look at that. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And here he comes on the scene and actually for the purpose of purifying what was going on there. It had a prophetic symbolism, as it were, denouncing impure worship. And, and you just picture Jesus. It's, 
stop making my father's house a place of commerce, a place of merchandise. And these aren't the words of, of some radical reformer. These are the words of the Son of God who has relationship with his father, who has reverence for his father. And so he's, he's offended. He has a righteous indignation towards their, those who has an indifference in the house of God. This is not a place of merchandise, but it's a meeting house. And then he says it's for his glory. We read in Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Actually, think about it. In the Gospel of Luke, we have the account when Jesus is 12 years old, right? Do you remember where he goes? To the temple with the caravan, right? And he's going there with his parents, right? And you can almost picture, already see in germ form, you might say, his zeal for the house there. Because what happened? They departed, the caravan left, Jesus stayed behind, there's a lot of people, Mary didn't realize that he was not with them, and comes back to find him. And what does he say? Don't you know I have to be about my father's business? So already you had that picture some 18 years before of his passion and his concern for these things. It has not changed over those years. The other three Gospels um, record this cleansing at the end of Jesus' ministry. Remember, right before the Passion Week and all of that. And uh, so there's all this debate as does John actually just move it here for dramatic for dramatic sense or whatever that jesus comes on the scene and believe it or not most commentators would say that he's he's about producing truth he's painting a picture of christ he's being selective with the brush strokes of which he's given that's why he doesn't record all the things that the other gospels have and some scholars think he moved it here for that reason um I agree with the minority of commentators that I respect that there's simply two temple cleansings, right? He was going to the temple every year for the Passover, and so I don't think that's uh, that big of a stretch. Now, some would say that Jesus lost his temper. Did he lose his temper? I thought he was sinless, right? Some some would freak out about that. Um, Some would claim that his physical action Though it was so forceful, it was not cruel. After all, it's not, easy, it's not an easy thing to drive out a bunch of cattle and sheep. And by the way, so oxen, sheep, and doves. So oxen would be for the upper class that could afford a more pricey animal. Doves would be for the poor, as we know from the Old Testament. Sheep would be sort of like for the middle class. So probably most of us would have sheep. Um, maybe a few doves and a few oxen. I don't know <laughs> if, we, if we had to do this. But um, anyway, so uh, but his, his, uh, his, his, this is a righteous anger. And, and, and how often have you, if you've been walking with the Lord for some time and, and you got angry at something, you go, well, it was a righteous anger, right? How often have you done that as an excuse? You know how you want to, you want a grid that you can examine that uh, to put that through? It's, it's, it's not a concern for yourself and things that you have suffered, um, you know, by which you say, well, I have a right to be angry. I mean, did you see what happened to me? Uh, You know, all of that. Um, No, but it's a pure, unmixed zeal 
for the things of God and his reputation. That's the motive between for a righteous anger. That's how you can know. Is it a righteous anger? Most of the time, we're concerned about ourselves, right? And so um, John Calvin says this, but there are two reasons which deserve our attention. First, as the priest abused this merchandise for their own gain and getting rich, such a mockery of God could not be endured. Secondly, whatever excuse men may plead as soon as they depart, however, slightly from the command of God, they deserve reproof and they need correction. And this is the chief reason why Christ undertook to purify the temple, for he distinctly states that the temple of God is not a place of merchandise. It's worth noting also that, you know, here's this unknown man that comes on the scene. The priests don't try to stop him. The Jews don't try to stop him. The Romans that would even be overseeing everything to maintain order, being a Roman territory, they don't try to stop him. Now, you have to ask, why? Well, maybe their conscience, they knew. They've been practicing this year by year, and hey, we've got a little lax, we moved it into the temple, and suddenly this man comes on the scene accusing us. But also, don't underestimate the power of Christ. Do you remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? And here it flanked Roman soldiers there, right? And they asked, where's Jesus? And what does he do? I am he. And what does it say? They all fell backwards, Right? So uh, it, it's probably more that he, has, he had this look on his face of a moral authority. What he was doing was with authority, because look in verse 18, the, the Jews actually say, what sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? Where did, where did your authority come from? So this moral authority. Isaiah 56, 7, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So those who are buying and selling doves said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. This picture here of Jesus purifying the temple is a small picture or type of the final judgment. Did you guys know that there will be a final judgment? When Jesus comes back, he will judge the wicked and rescue the righteous. It's a picture of final judgment to come. Think of how terrifying to see for these Jews to see the face of the sinless Son of God, to look into his eyes, to see his righteous anger as he took that whip around and drove him out. Get out of here! You know, there was, there was something about that. And you know what? When he comes back again, it's going to be just like that. We're told in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and every free man hid themselves in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's going to be much like this scene. Application. Do you have a zeal for the purity of the church? Do you have a zeal for that? Do you care? Do you, are you like Jesus in that way? First of all, just how about a passion for Christ himself? To know him more 
to commune with him, to have seasons of prayer, of fellowship, praising him. Do you have that? Do you long for that? Do you long for his worship, the public worship of God? When God meets with his people in a very unique way, with his spirit, to maintain purity in our worship, that we just don't do whatever willy new thing. Did you hear what the place down the street's doing? Well, we got to keep up with them or that, or I won't name churches. And where we're always changing what we do, no, we keep it scriptural. We keep it simple, just as the Bible has prescribed, not adding anything or not subtracting anything. Many church leaders rationalize that, well, the times are a-changing. I mean, come on, we've got to adapt to the culture. I mean, don't, we've got to adapt to the culture somehow. And they would say, that, but the end justifies the means, and that's not right. What about the Lord's Supper? God's given us a covenant meal to feast on Christ by faith every week. We should not neglect that. We should take it seriously, just as the early church did. Well, um, our third sub-point under this, God's temple of the church continues to be corrupted even today. This is God's church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Ephesians 1 and verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus is the head of this church. And yet there are so many that put on a little clerical collar or a robe or come in some other name or flashiness that, that are there to do nothing else but then to rip off the sheep to deprive and to steal, or to make themselves rich. They use their positions to prop themselves up. Think of the word faith movement, just to use an exaggeration here, but these people with their private jets, and they justify having their private jets. Some will sell special holy water, that if you just take this, you'll get the anointing of the Spirit. Some sell these handkerchiefs, that when you're sick, you just wipe yourself with it or something. I mean, it's, it's crazy, the stuff that takes place out there. Also, Christians, even some well-meaning Christians, can be guilty of what these Jews were guilty of. Commerce on the Lord's Day. Buying and selling. They, they, like a long time ago, it was Amway, you know? Oh, I'm into Amway now, and you know, here's my card. I'll give you a discount since you're a fellow member, you know, or whatever. And, and that kind of thing. Of course, most recently, it's Young Living's Essential Oils or doTERRA or whatever, you know, all these different places. These are multi-level schemes, not schemes, but that the more people that you can sell and get under you selling it, the more money you make. We know somebody that did quite well with that many years ago. And sadly, some of it was going through the church and, and everybody at the church got underneath and that kind of thing. I've known some that neglect worship so that they can work because, hey, I get double time. Why wouldn't I do that? I don't do it every Sunday, but you know, I'll just do it for six, eight Sundays. And what happens? They get burned out. They're exhausted. They're not under the means of grace. Oftentimes, difficulty will come into their lives. 
Others forsake worship due to children's sports on Sunday. That's a big issue today. Well, I wish I could be there, but little Johnny's got baseball for the next three months and that kind of thing. What folly? Praise God that in his infinite wisdom, he knew that we needed a day of rest and worship. All the way from the Old Testament, the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. We have the Christian Lord's Day by which we remove all the things we do in the other six days of the week. We can do whatever we want those six days, but on this day, it's devoted to worship, to the Him who is worthy. We remove all those other distractions. And then come Sunday night, Monday morning, we're refreshed. We're ready for a new week. Well, we've seen the beginning of his public ministry. We see the zeal for his house. Now that our last point today, do you have part in the raising of the temple of Jesus? The Jews challenged him. Look in verse 18 here. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Rather than the Jews saying, this man is right, even not knowing who he is, he's, he's right. We shouldn't be in here. We're prohibited from being here. They've been, their sin has been exposed, and they should be thanking Jesus for exposing it. But the Jewish temple authorities did not respond in brokenness and contrition. They refused to examine themselves, but instead they wanted to put Jesus on trial. What authority do you do these things? They don't challenge him on what he did, But they're asking, where does this authority come from? So they ask for a sign. Not because they were sincere um, and desired to be convinced. In Matthew 12, it says, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Signs are beneficial for those genuinely seeking the Lord. We saw it back in verse 11, right? Right after at the wedding of Cana, it says that Jesus, this was his first sign. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Signs can be beneficial, but they wanted to attack Jesus. No sign would have convinced them because they were hard-hearted. In fact, Jesus had just cleared the temple by himself, not with a team of disciples, not with a little small army. By himself, he had just cleared the whole outer courts of the Gentiles. What a sign. That's a sign, <laughs> certainly right there. But they didn't want to recognize that. Also, other Gospels show where Jesus does not re, um, grant this request. In Mark 8, the Pharisees came out and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven and to test him, sighing deeply in his spirit. This is what Jesus said. Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. But notice how it says there, Jesus sighed deeply. He's tired of hearing this over and over. And the irony is, is that he already Um, did a sign. All the commerce was gone. There was now silence, uh, mostly silence in the temple. 
Well, verses 19 to 22, Jesus answers in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Now they're standing in a temple, a large temple. Yeah, not, not quite as nice as Solomon's, but how is he going to raise up this temple? They just, it just goes completely over their head. He answers them according to their folly. It, he answers them according to the hardness of their hearts. He even keeps the truth from the unbelieving, as it says, around and with the parables. He answers with an answer that's an alarming. It's, it's startling as to what he did. In Matthew 12, 40, it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking of his resurrection, we read in Acts 2, Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men who put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it's impossible for him to be held by its power. In verse 32, and Jesus, this Jesus, God raised from the dead, to which we are all witnesses. He's speaking, of course, of his resurrection. And Leon Morris, this is a golden quote, I put it in the email, he says this, and, and again, the, the reasoning, right? Here he is, destroy this temple, and in three, day, in three days I'll raise it up. He's speaking of his body, of course, and of course that went right over their head, but at the, two years later, it would be the very Jews that would put him on a cross and to kill him. It says the fact that ultimately the Jews themselves were to be the means of bringing the sign that they asked Jesus to produce and which they did not recognize. They would be the ones that would destroy this temple, right? And in three days, raise it up. God would raise it up. There is a further irony that to put Jesus to death was to offer the one sacrifice to expiate sin and thus doom the use of the temple and its offering of sacrifices, so Jesus' sacrifice would make the temple obsolete anyway, right? It's glorious. The place where divine reconciliation and true atonement for all of God's people was on the cross, but they did not understand these figurative words at all. He's essentially saying, knock it down, I'll raise it up <laughs> with forcefulness. He, he considered that, that this, or they, they considered that this was a bluff, something that took 46 years, you're going to knock it down. It's incredible. But Jesus often speaks like this, right? Next week, we're going to see in John 3, look over John 3 and verse 4. See it? Right down a few verses. Nicodemus, Jesus says, truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So this type of language that Jesus uses often baffles the hearts of the Jews. These Jews took great pride in the temple. Um, so the, answers that, the answer that the Jews give essentially uh, is, who do you think you are? It took 46 years for us to build this, right? Jesus foretold throughout his ministry 
the, his destiny of the cross and the resurrection throughout his ministry. And it's clearly seen here. He obviously knows he's here for a mission. He knows he's going to be destroyed or killed. And his death was foretold throughout the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to that. Psalm 16, of which uh, Peter quotes in Acts 2, you will make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy and your right hand there are pleasures forever. That's not the right verse, actually. It's the one that says, I will not allow my Holy One to undergo decay. I'm not going to try to find it. You know the verse. Anyway, Isaiah 53 and verse 12, Therefore I will allot to him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So much of what we read, much of what we study, even for us, we don't fully comprehend until later. Um, And that was true of even the disciples. Look in verse 22. And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken. So even the disciples didn't quite get what he was talking about. But it says, when he had been raised from the dead, then they remembered, ah, I remember that event now. And of course, later in John chapter 14, and uh, verse 26, where it says that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit will aid us in our memory, I think aided all the gospel writers and the disciples to remember this event. Well, what's the implications of the new covenant? The old temple being replaced. The old temple would be rendered obsolete. And, and, and God wanted to make it so by even in AD 70, having Titus come in to destroy that temple. He prophesied about it um, in Mark 13, Matthew 24, this temple, you know, how beautiful these stones and all of that, that it will, not one stone will be uh, still standing. The Jews mistreat Jesus, the true temple just as the typical temple, having all that buying and selling. Jesus is the true anti-type, which surpasses the type, right? Um, Jesus said, I say to you that someone greater than the temple is here, pointing to himself, the place of God's presence where God meets with man. Of course, the church of Christ is where God dwells today. We are his temple. It says in uh, Ephesians 2 and verse 21, in whom the whole building being fitted together, that means everyone's got a building block into this building. It's a supernatural spiritual building. Everyone's got a building block, as it were. Every believer, every member is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God by His Spirit. This fitted together, growing and maturing into this new covenant temple. Just as we have been raised um, up in Christ in newness of life, and we are part of that temple, the new covenant members of the bride, now we're the ones that offer spiritual sacrifices, not the priest. We offer spiritual sacrifices. 
It says in Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 1 Peter 2, 4, And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by man, but is choice in the presence of God, and also as living stones. Every believer in here, living stones are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Paul, Peter uses this language, yes, slightly different, but it's the same idea. Well, what can we learn from this passage, brethren? A couple of concluding applications. The first is this, I want to ask everybody, what is your response to Jesus? We see three types of response here. Some outright reject him. Verse 18, the Jews told him, what sign do you do to show us as your authority? The Jews are just outright rejecting him. They're full of pride, and they found reasons to reject him. That's one. Some say, gosh, I felt a little warm and fuzzy, and they have a little shallow faith, but they're not genuinely saved. It actually says there in verse 23, when he was in Jerusalem during the feast, many believed in his name who were observing his signs that he was doing. But Jesus knew their heart. He even says there, but Jesus, for his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. So he knew in their heart it was a superficial, it was a spurious faith, not a real faith. And then the third response is a true throwing yourself and embracing Christ, a true faith, a true believing, a true trusting in him. And the disciples back in verse 11 again at the end of the wedding at Cana This sign, he manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. And you see that repeatedly being told through the gospel. Secondly, so what's your response to Jesus? One. Secondly, practical application. And I'm going to fire off a few things here. I think some clear application as to the temple, its purity, the zeal that Jesus has, is to we need to make worship a priority every week. It, it, it shouldn't be in every other week. It shouldn't be, I'll see how I feel. It should be the most important thing on your calendar is to make public worship. If it's not here, go to another church, a solid church that preaches the Bible. It should be a priority in your life if you're a child of God, plain and simple. And by the way, making worship a priority doesn't mean waking up at 1130 and coming in at 12. It should begin the night before, to be quite honest. You know, prayer, tomorrow's the Lord's Day, uh, getting up early, having a time of communion with the Lord, preparing even in the morning before you come. You've, you're at a church that starts rather late. <laughs> even, even if you came to 1030 prayer meeting, you've still got a few hours of preparation that's there. Secondly, take biblical holiness seriously. Seek to walk in integrity. You know, these Jews, it's not like they just, hey, let's just bring all this in. It's little compromises that led to more compromise. It led to more compromise. It led to more compromise to where all the money changers are right there in the temple with all the animals. And they were ripping people off as well. Care about your sanctification. It's great if you're a Christian, you're saved, you've been justified in the court of heaven. That's wonderful. God declares you righteous. 
But we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, as Peter says. Secondly, encourage those that serve you with the hospitality ministry and the nursery, if they're watching your little ones, the music ministry. Encourage those who are using their gifts in serving God and serving you. Secondly, ask yourself, am I using my gifts? How am I serving? How am I serving God and the body of Christ? I just read from Paul, Romans 12, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. Pour yourself out for others. He's worthy. He's worthy, plain and simple. And then how do we live in a a perverse generation? We're to live upright in a perverse generation. That means we should have an impact on our culture. That means we should be active in evangelism, even in our workplaces, even with our neighbors, Um, all of these things. So some basic application from this passage. And then lastly, are you ready to meet Jesus? He's coming again. I already read from Revelation 6 where some are, (laughs) hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. He will bring his rod of anger. He had a whip of a scourge of cords, mere ropes most likely to clear out the temple. He will come with the rod of his anger against his enemies. His inflexible righteousness will have to be contended with with every enemy of God. You say, I'm not an enemy of God, but I'm not a real strong Christian. I'm not really a Christian either. You're an enemy of God if you're not in faith. Plain and simple. But he today is abundantly gracious. He says, come unto me, any who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The door of mercy is wide open today. So have dealings with God. If, he's, if, if you're sensing by his spirit some conviction and you're not a believer, talk to the elders, talk to Steve or I, talk to a, a trusted friend, and, and maybe even more importantly, get on your knees before God. And don't get up until you say, God, I want you to save me. Have mercy on me. Confess your sins. Help me to change. All of that is a beautiful picture of conversion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you even for this passage and showing us this side of Jesus, lest we we have a a perverted and wrong view of Jesus Christ. Even during his earthly ministry, there were times like this where zeal had consumed him and zeal for your house. Lord, help us to have a zeal for this house, this particular local church, those of us uh, that are members here. Help us, O God, to do this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Before I step down,